Welcome to Raven Conversations, the show where we bring you news and information on the Washington National Guard, as well as in-depth conversations with the people who make it all happen. You. I'm Jason Kreis. The beauty that surrounds us in the Pacific Northwest is nothing short of awe-inspiring. The year-round green of the dense forest, the majestic stature of the Cascades, the full breadth of the flora and fauna, and the cooling waters of the Puget Sound are all no doubt wonders to behold. But the stunning scenery and bountiful outdoor activities come with a powerful and shocking price. For millions of years, Mother Nature has forged our landscape with mighty earthquakes and volcanoes. Now, living in the majestic Pacific Northwest, most of us, hopefully all of us, are well aware of the natural disaster threats that we live with. There are the towering volcanoes that dot the Cascades, the most famous one being the one that killed 57 people when Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980. There are the numerous earthquakes that happen on a daily basis, and there are the deadly landslides like the one that took out the small community of Oso in 2014. And then there's the famous Cascadia subduction zone fault line that lies off our coast. It is capable of unleashing unspeakable amounts of damage to our coastal communities, as well as massive destruction to our infrastructure. Bridges could collapse, cutting off major roadways. Airport runways may sustain damage, rendering them useless. Communities could very well be isolated from all types of connection and communication. It could very well isolate people for up to two weeks or more. For the next two episodes of Raven Conversations, Sarah Morris and I will talk with experts who will lay out exactly what we face as far as natural disasters here in Washington, what they are, what you can expect when they happen, but most importantly, how you can prepare for them. We've invited Maximilian Dixon onto the show to explain to us what exactly we face here in the Pacific Northwest. He is the Hazards and Outreach Program Supervisor at the Emergency Management Division. He also manages the earthquake, tsunami, and volcano programs in Washington. So that means he has a vast amount of knowledge about a significant event that could happen in our lifetime. And in the next episode, we will talk with Brigadier General Jeremy Horn about how to put together your very own preparedness kit and where to put them. Studies have shown that in the event of a major disaster like the ones we face here, the ones that survive are the ones who prepared. As guardsmen, we need to know what threats are out there. After all, we are the ones who will answer the call to help assist our neighbors and the first responders who will most likely be overwhelmed. But we need to prepare ourselves, our families, and our loved ones first. We hope that the next two episodes will give you the knowledge and the motivation to start preparing yourselves for at least two weeks. For many people, it just may be that long before the cavalry arrives. So without further delay, I give you our conversation with Maximilian Dixon. I'm here with Maximilian Dixon. He is the earthquake program manager? Or? Actually, my title has changed. Okay. So I'm now the Hazards and Outreach Program Supervisor. Okay. But I manage the earthquake, tsunami, and volcano programs for the state of Washington. Tell me a little bit about your education. You know, where'd you, what you studied in? So I have a bachelor's in environmental science, studying climate change and ecosystems. I have a master's in urban planning, sort of a traditional planning degree for city planning. And then I also have a master's degree in infrastructure planning and emergency management. So covering you know, what happens to infrastructure, infrastructure systems during disasters, uh, how they operate, uh, and then also to plan, how to plan for big disasters. Okay, cool. Makes sense. And then uh, with your job, can you just sort of explain what your job is here in the emergency management? I mean, your title says a lot, but what does that mean? 
So I manage the earthquake, tsunami, and volcano programs uh, for the state, but I also oversee preparedness and outreach uh, for the state of Washington as well. Uh, and essentially, it's bringing science to practice and getting all of the key players together uh, to help educate, inform, motivate, uh, and protect the public uh, for natural hazards. So living here in Washington and on the West Coast, what kind of threats and hazards do we have to be on the lookout for? We have a lot of hazards here on the coast. Uh, as you can see, the, lots of mountains. So we are on what we call the Ring of Fire. That's uh, the Pacific Ocean. All the way around the Pacific Ocean, there's a lot of activity. Uh, so essentially, you've got tectonic plates uh, that make up the whole surface of the planet. Think of puzzle pieces floating on a really hot ball of uh, kind of liquid hot rock, right? And so these puzzle pieces are you know, either moving uh, away from each other, like under the Pacific Ocean, or they're sliding across each other, like the San Andreas Fault, uh, or they're subducting underneath each other, which is what's happening here off the coast of Washington. So our biggest uh, hazard that we have here for natural hazards is the Cascadia Subduction Zone Fault. And that runs about 700 miles long. It's about oh, 80 or 100 miles off the coast of Washington. It goes from northern Vancouver Island all the way down to northern California. And this fault is capable of producing potentially up to a 9.2 magnitude earthquake. So think uh, the 1964 Alaska earthquake, except longer. Uh, and, and it can shake up to five to six minutes. So if you go back to Nisqually, mm -hmm. earthquake 2001, that was our last sort of small big earthquake. Uh, I say small big earthquake because it was pretty small for a big one. Mm -hmm. uh, and that earthquake lasted about 30 seconds. And you could see the damage, about one to four billion dollars worth of damage. Uh, yeah, and now imagine shaking was a little more intense for five to six minutes, right. not 30 seconds. That's a long time. Yeah. yeah. And so the last event <coughs> that happened uh, from the Cascadia subduction zone that we know of was 1700. It was January 26, 1700. And we know that because there are records of an orphan tsunami in Japan. Because they have records back a thousand years because they have a lot of tsunamis throughout their history. And so the fishermen you know, took these records and they said, oh, in 1700 we had no earthquake, but we had this tsunami that hit us, right? And then we also know from Brian Atwater from the United States Geological Survey and others who did a lot of work uh, digging along the coast and they found sand deposits over going back, you know, a thousand years or so uh, to different tsunamis that have happened on the west coast. So it very clearly shows that there were multiple tsunamis uh, and there have been quite a few, I think something like 20 different events in the last 10,000 years uh, for the west coast. And also there are ghost forests or trees. What happens is when you have uh, a subduction zone earthquake, which is the Cascadia subduction zone, that means we've got the North America plate, which is you know, quite large, and it's moving sort of west-northwest. And then you've got the Juan de Fuca plate, um, and that is going underneath the North America plate. And essentially it's heavier, it's underneath the ocean, and it's being dragged down. And right now we know that the North America plate and the Juan de Fuca plate are locked. So they're moving towards each other, 
but there it's just that pressure that's building up and so eventually that pressure will get so great it'll overcome the friction and it'll slide suddenly mm -hmm. similar to the japan tohoku 2011 earthquake mm -hmm. uh, that devastated japan and so we will see something like that here in washington oregon and california and british columbia uh, and so the last event was you know 319 years ago and these events happen about every two to six hundred years so we're in the window of having an event we do know that it's locked so that pressure is building up and so it could happen any day now that's the big driving force here it's the that's the big one uh, that everybody talks about uh, you know and this Cascadia subduction zone earthquake it is capable of generating very large tsunamis and I mentioned that there was that orphan tsunami in Japan in 1700. Mm. Well, it also hit our coast, and we can see that there were quite large deposits. Now, that wasn't the largest event. So we've had larger events in the past uh, that you know the, the wave heights have been higher. Uh, so the modeling that we do right now is for a 2,500-year event. That Cascadia subduction zone uh, event from 1700 was about a 500-year event. Uh, and so the 2,500-year event, which we know is possible, uh, it's happened in, in our history. It is capable of cre uh, developing or producing 60-foot waves that will hit the Washington coast within about 15 or 20 minutes. So you have the rupture of the earthquake, and it's like a zipper, right? So you have 700-mile-long fault that is going north-south uh, along, you know, underneath the Pacific Ocean along the west coast and it will break at some point. It'll start somewhere on that 700 miles. And so kind of our worst case scenario is if that breaks and starts in Northern California and then starts breaking like a zipper. So what'll happen is it'll, the friction, it'll overcome the friction and it'll slide really quickly. And then it'll be like a chain reaction all the way up. Right. Uh, yeah, and so like a zipper unzipping, right? So it takes minutes, a few minutes for this fault to fully rupture. And by the time it hits us, all these energy waves and the tsunami waves are going to be sort of focused our way. And so once that starts, you can expect waves to hit Westport, Ocean Shores, Neo, Neo, um, not necessarily Neo Bay, but on the outside, uh, the northern tip, uh, you know, Long Beach, 15 to 20 minutes. And so you've got five to six minutes of shaking. And then, you know, 10 to 15 minutes after that, your first wave arrives. Uh, now, what happens then is during the shaking, you have what we call subsidence. And subsidence is because all this pressure with the two plates that are locked, uh, the Juan de Fuca plates pushing on the North America plate, and it's hard to explain over you know, audio, but essentially <clears throat> it's lifting the coast up out of the water, that pressure. Right. Uh, so once that pressure lets go, the coast will drop about six feet, just, just like that. Yeah, and so you're going to have some water that's going to rush in uh, yeah. along the coast immediately. Uh, you're going to have all that shaking, and then, like I said, 15 to 20 minutes, first wave arrives, uh, and it's just going to devastate the coast. Yeah, and you're going to have a series of waves, because a tsunami in the open ocean travels about 500 miles an hour. Right. It's the entire ocean coming towards you, the entire ocean. Right. And so it's not like surface waves for, like, you know, the tides and things like that. It's just talking the entire ocean, absolutely powerful. You think about the waves that are coming in that are hitting the coast is just a, an endless series of locomotive trains coming. 
uh, wave after wave because they come about every hour. There's multiple waves for you know 12 to 24 hours. And think about it as just like one train lined up against the other ones all the way up along the coast for the whole western coast of, of United States. And they're all moving at the same time and they do not stop. And so that's what you're getting hit with. That's the power of the ocean. Uh, so as an example, one foot to two foot tsunami can slam cars and trucks up against buildings and do massive damage. That's just one to two feet high. It's mm -hmm. extremely powerful. Uh, and so now imagine the 60 foot wave. Right. Yeah. Uh, so it, it won't be 60 feet everywhere, obviously, just in some places. But it's hard to model. We can't tell exactly where that's going to be because each event is different. Uh, but essentially, yeah, you have five to six minutes of shaking, multiple series of waves coming in. So you've got buildings that are damaged, you've got infrastructure that's damaged, roads, you've got landslides, you know, that have been, because of the shaking, you've got all this loose soil coming down, uh, you've got trees falling over, telephone poles falling over, you've got overpasses collapsing, you have buildings, that, you know, the sides of buildings are coming down, you've got everything inside the buildings that are falling down uh, on top of people. I mean, you just have all kinds of destruction that's happening. And then you get hit by these waves and it just washes everything away. Wow, that's scary. That's... Yeah. So, <laughs> I guess in that model of the, the really big one, the 2500 year event, I mean, who, the, the Pacific Coast, so we're talking the actual Pacific Coast out on the Olympic Peninsula, as far as Washington's worst hit by the tsunami? Correct. Does that have any impact on the Olympic Mountains, since they're sort of like a solitude so the Olympic Mountains are... They're super, it's super weird. Yeah, so they weren't created uh, by magma coming up from, from below the earth. They were just heavy, dense rock that got squeezed up, kind of like a pimple, uh, over time, over millions and millions of years. Yeah. Uh, and so they are not volcanic. Right. And yeah, so they're just really hard, hard rock. Uh, but, you know, as far as impacting the Cascades, uh, or I'm sorry, the Olympic Mountains, I mean, I mean there those, might be some rock fall. Do or, those glaciers sort of give way that are at the top? Oh, I see. So for avalanches and things right. like that. Uh, it's a possibility. It really depends on what time of year it is. Uh, it depends on the conditions, uh, how much loose ice or snow is up there. Right. Uh, but yeah, there could be uh, some, some ice or snow giving way. I wouldn't say there aren't large enough glaciers there, and especially if it's during the summertime, there's no glaciers. Right. Right. So let's say middle of winter, it just had a little bit of a sort of a warm rain, you know, so some things are kind of loose. Yeah, potentially. You could have some rock slides, you could have some av um, avalanches, some, some landslides situation. Yeah. yeah, so if you're climbing, right. certainly, yeah, uh, that would be something to watch out for. Uh, but the biggest impacts are going to be landslides that are uh, human-made. Right. So you have a road that cut into a hillside, right? Right. You have a development that is, you know, cleared brush and trees from the hillside or, you know, anything that where we have altered the landscape right. uh, because it hasn't had time to have an earthquake or to settle over time, per se, you know, hundreds or thousands of years. So you've got this soil that could go uh, because it's the base has been taken away. Right. Yeah. So those kind of things, things also liquefaction. So. The Christchurch 2010, 2011 earthquakes, a lot of liquefaction. That's essentially where you've got water in uh, either under or in within loose soil. And the shaking, like if you're standing on the beach, right, 
and you're right next to the water and it's the sand is wet and you're kind of moving up and down with your feet mm -hmm. and then you start to sink. So that's why liquefaction. So imagine shaking your feet really fast and you're sinking down. Uh, so essentially the, the water comes up and whatever is heavy sinks. Right. So buildings or cars or things like that. Uh, and so those essentially, you know, it can, it can damage buildings and stuff, but it's not something that's going to like suck you in like quicksand or anything. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Have we been able to pinpoint, not maybe, maybe not pinpoint, but identify areas up and down the coast that will be hit the hardest in a, in a, like a 9.0 event? Yeah, the coast. Just the coast? The coast or is going to be hit the hardest. Uh, so the, their closest... Okay, so if, if you're thinking about earthquake shaking, mm -hmm. right? So think of about like a light bulb. So you have a 100-watt light bulb. The closer you are to that light bulb, looking straight at it, the more blinding it is, the brighter it is, right? The further away from that light bulb, the, the more dim it is, right? The less mm -hmm. intense. So it's just like an earthquake. So it releases energy, it shakes. The closer you are to that earthquake... Right the more intense it is, the more shaking it is, right? The intense the shaking. The further away you are, the less intense. So, since the fault is just off the coast of Washington or right underneath the coast, folks that are closest to it along the coast are gonna feel the most intense shaking. And consequently, they are gonna get hit the hardest with the tsunami waves. Uh, and that's gonna hit them sooner uh, than anyone else. So it's really the folks on the coast that are gonna get hit the most. But the waves, will travel into the Salish Sea and Puget Sound. So especially for maritime, boats, ports, harbors, uh, ferries, things of that nature, anything that's on the water or, or right next to the water, uh, it's going to get hit. And so you're going to have powerful currents. So even if the wave's only three to six feet high, or, you know, it, the, the, the power of that ocean and those currents are going to be really, really strong. So it's going to damage you know, everything that's on the water or in the water or next to the water. Uh, and so it's going to have a huge impact on our economy. Uh, and, you know, it's, it could set us back 10 years. Uh, it, and it's, it's going to shake the entire state. So any buildings that are unreinforced masonry buildings like brick buildings or concrete buildings that haven't been reinforced with steel, uh, you know, those are prone. Uh, also buildings that, if you look at like apartment buildings that are, I don't know, three, four or five stories, and they've got these little metal poles that are the first floor where you can drive underneath the building, like these little apartment buildings, those are very vulnerable as well. We call soft story. Uh, so those, those buildings are, are, are definitely vulnerable and potentially could collapse, or at least the, the sides of them. Um, so, you know, and then of course, you've got overpasses and bridges and, you know, pipes. Oh man, fuel pipes, water pipes, sewer pipes. You know, you've got electric, electrical uh, poles, uh, you know, you name it. There's going to be all kinds of damage. Uh, so that's why we are really, really focusing on the public and everyone else getting prepared, uh, you know, because you're going to have to be on your own for a while. Uh, so we do recommend at least two weeks. Now, if you're on the coast, it could be more like a month, uh, you know, so it really depends on you because a lot of coastal communities are going to be isolated. You've got one road in, one road out. Mm -hmm. You have bridges. You've got landslide issues. Uh, you know you're gonna you're they're gonna be stuck for a long time, uh, and so you know it's it's gonna be a tough situation. And think about when you're on the coast. Let's say it's the middle of winter, right. or even the fall, 40 degrees and raining. Right? 
we don't want people to, you know, survive the tsunami by knowing their evacuation routes, you know, drop covering, hold on, protecting themselves during the earthquake so that they don't break a leg or hit their head so they can actually get to high ground. So they run their evacuation route, they get to high ground, and then they don't have anything with them. They don't have a jacket, they don't have anything to protect themselves, and then they die of hypothermia in 40 degree raining weather because they're out there in the elements for days and days and weeks. Right. Uh, you know, so we want people to be, be safe. and. Yeah, it's not just the actual impact or the event itself, it's right. the follow-on that could really get, that can get people. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, now that's just the big earthquake, right? right. So that is driving, those tectonic plates running into each other, that is driving also the other earthquakes and faults that we have here in Washington. So essentially what's happening is Washington is getting crushed and twisted uh, because of all that force, right? And so since we, it's, the state of Washington is made up of different types of rock and some are soft, some are hard, uh, and you've got cracks that form. And so these faults are surface faults, and they are also very dangerous. And so the last Seattle, because we have Seattle Fault, Tacoma Fault, South Whidbey Island Fault, uh, Devil's Mountain, uh, so we've, we've got quite a few uh, what we call crustal or surface faults. It's because they're very close to the surface of the Earth. Mm -hmm. And like I said, when I was describing before how close you are to that light bulb, since they are very close to the surface of the Earth, you are going to feel really intense shaking because you're that much closer, right? right? So we're talking about, you know, a few miles to maybe 10 miles underneath the surface. And so you're very, very close to it. And so the Seattle Fall earthquake, to give you an example, went off in 900 AD, so it was about 1,100 years ago. And when that went off, it sent Alki, if anyone's from Seattle, they know Alki, mm -hmm. 25 feet up in the air. And Bremerton, Bainbridge Island. Mm -hmm. So essentially you're thinking about a crack in the earth and part of the earth went boop, raised 25 feet, just like that. Wow. Yeah. And so that whole area of Alki that you drive on and people have built condos and whatnot, that was all underwater. underwater. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and you can see it too. If you look at the LIDAR, uh, the, you know, the images and stuff, you can see where that fault is. Uh, yeah, so very, very powerful earthquakes. And actually for Seattle or Tacoma, you know, some of the cities and areas and towns uh, next to Puget Sound, these crustal faults are actually going to be a lot more intense. You're going to have a lot more damage from the shaking because they're right next to the surface or right next to them. Uh, so these are very, very powerful. Now luckily they're, you know, doesn't happen very often. There's about a 5 to 15 percent chance uh, in the next 50 years that we're going to have a crustal fault somewhere. Mm. Um, yeah, and then we also have, so you got the subduction zone fault, it's the big one. Right. You've got the crustal faults, which is essentially cracking at the surface, right, because there's so much pressure going on, eventually part of that what rock has to release, and then it shifts, right, suddenly. Uh, and then you've got what we call deep fault earthquakes. And default earthquakes happen, you know, 30, 60, 100 uh, miles below the surface. And so what, that was the Nisqually earthquake. So that was about, I think, 34 miles below the surface that that earthquake happened. Mm -hmm. And since they're so far away, so, so much further down below the surface, we don't feel them as much. And so they're not as damaging, luckily. Uh, so with that Nisqually earthquake, it went off and it was a wide area but it wasn't as intense shaking, and it didn't last as long, the earthquake. Because uh, the, the longer the fault is, 
then the, the longer the shaking is, mm -hmm. essentially. And then, then, of course, the more energy is released. Mm -hmm. uh, but that deep fault earthquake, we have those about every 30 to 50 years. Mm -hmm. So there's an 84% chance in the next 50 years that we will have another one. Uh, and so we had, you know, 2001, 1965, 1949. And if you keep going back, it's pretty consistent. Uh, unfortunately, you know, people do die from these earthquakes as well. Um, but they, and they happen a lot more frequently. Uh, they're not quite as damaging, but they can kill people and they can do a lot of damage. Uh, but essentially what that is, is you've got that plate, the Wanafuka plate that's going down, down, you know, hundreds of miles below the surface. Right. But as it gets pushed down, it's saturated with the water from the sea, right, from the Pacific Ocean. It's in the, in the, uh, the soil itself, right? So that soil and that water and everything gets down and it starts getting hot. Because the further down you go below right. the surface, the hotter it gets, right? Mm -hmm. And so that rock starts melting. Right. It's like taffy. And because of that, it doesn't take as much pressure. There's not as much friction. Right. You know, it's like, you know, to hold on to it. So it slips. It's like yeah, it's like lubricated, right? It slips a lot more often. That's why we have them about every 30 to 50 years. And so that's slipping. But, uh, so that's good, but on uh, the bad side, it's adding more pressure up above where the big earthquake is, right? Uh, big fault is. Um, so it keeps slipping down. Uh, and then, of course, with that, you've got that seawater and, you know, the melting of the rock. And that's creating gas and pressure that is then comes up and is helping to form our volcanoes, our wonderful mm -hmm. uh, mountains that we have here, the Cascades. Uh, and so we have five active volcanoes here. And the, that's the reason why, because we're on the ring of fire, and it's constantly melting. Uh, and that seawater and stuff that's bubbling up and it's coming through the surface. And so you've got that pressure, and so Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980, right? Killed 57 people, unfortunately. Uh, and then you've got, we've got five active volcanoes here in Washington State. So can you name the five? Rainier, Adams, Baker, Helens, Glacier. Perfect. Nice. All five. Awesome. I love the mountains. Those <laughs> those are my. And you're the you're the most recent transplant. I am, but I'm obsessed <laughs> with the mountains. I yeah. mean, I know they're dangerous, but man, are they pretty. They are. They are. They draw a lot of people here, uh, and so we have the second highest and the third highest risk volcanoes in the country. Right. So Mount St. Helens is number two. Mount Rainier is number three. Uh, and Kilauea in Hawaii is number one because, mm -hmm. I mean, you see what happened last year. It erupted for like five or six months, right? Yeah. yeah. But it's been a while since Rainier's erupted. 1850-something? Yes. Uh, yeah, something around there. I, I think it's 1853, maybe. So yeah. it's like worst-case scenario, like the earthquake happens and then Rainier blows up and, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and so everything's destroyed all at one time. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of people ask that, and there really isn't science that links... Uh, large earthquakes triggering volcanic eruptions. Okay. Uh, we're not saying that it's not, not even like an aftershock hitting it or something like that? Yeah, I mean there's so many factors that go into uh, when or how uh, volcanoes erupt and what triggers it. Uh, it's just, it you know, feels like it. Yeah, I mean it's, uh, well a certain amount of gas and stuff has to build up and there's a lot, you know, certain conditions uh, that need to be met but there isn't really science linking to say, okay, an earthquake happened and now we have an eruption, right? right? It's not saying they couldn't happen together, but it doesn't necessarily causation, you know, cause and effect. Right. Yeah. Uh, but that know. would be like the doomsday scenario. Well, that would be really bad. That would be really, really bad. 
Uh, but yeah, Mount Rainier is extremely dangerous. You've got so many people that are living uh, either next to or around the mountain. Uh, you've got uh, lahars, which are essentially just big mud flows right. that come down from the mountain. Uh, they're and like those are tsunamis. going to like the most populated areas. Yeah, you've based got based off the model, right? Yeah, you've yeah. got the city of Ording. They do evacuation drills every year, which is great because uh, they have about an hour uh, of warning, uh, you know, potential warning until they get hit by a lahar potentially. Uh, you've got, you know, we've seen it in the past that lahars have come all the way down to Tacoma. Yeah, down right. to the tide flats, right? Down. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's it's certainly a possibility. Uh, it's a dangerous mountain. Uh, right. It's beautiful. Yeah, I will. So my daughter does the Junior Ranger program at every state park, and there's they show in the video they show the projected different routes of the lahars. Yeah, and they were very excited to learn that where we live was not like super in danger because they were very aware that the volcano is dangerous. Mm -hmm. But uh, it showed that one of the possible routes take it all the way through the Nisqually River too, so even south of of Tacoma, which. It's yeah, crazy. Yeah, there are a few, uh, and it really it depends on the conditions. Right. You know. That's what they said. Uh, so you know we don't really know when the next <coughs> lahar is going to happen, or you know yeah. which um, which valley it's going to go into. Uh, you know, and and if you look at Mount Baker, and you've got all the skiers up there, right. and uh, you know hopefully we get enough notice uh, to get people evacuated. But also, I mean, with no eruption at all, you mount. Uh, Rainier has claimed a lot of lives for people just climbing, yeah. you know, and hiking. Well, and uh, that's what I so then when you summit too, there's some places where you can sort of, because of the volcano, you can sort of like just dip into the wrong spot if you're not careful. And yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I guess I, so. On the integrity of the glacier on top isn't like 100 percent. No. Right. Yeah, especially with our atmospheres heating up. Uh, you've got melting of the glaciers and, you know, the, the ice is not as hard as it used to be, right. you know, melting, refreezing, melting, refreezing, exactly. you know, and you've got avalanche, uh, you know, that's always claims lives uh, quite frequently, not just on Mount Rainier, but other mountains, uh, you know, and so they are dangerous, you know, and people get lost uh, hiking, you know, uh, so unfortunately, you know, you want to know your, get, get up on your uh, wilderness outdoor training and climbing and all that but yeah so we have a beautiful landscape uh, we've got you know volcanic risk where you've got potentially for you know an uh, a volcanic eruption you've got you know lahars you've got ash that can go all over the state that can cause all kinds of economic impacts health hazards breathing in uh, and they actually have four inches of wet ash can collapse roofs Wow. Yeah, so it gets real heavy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't take much. No, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah, so good to know about that. Also, uh, you know, you can, depending on the type of um, rock and the type of volcanic eruption, you can have big boulders that get sent out. Um, and, you know, and there's, yeah, it's, uh, volcanoes are very interesting. Uh, but it's all it comes back to that ring of fire, right. you know, uh, and that's what's kind of the main driver for our hazards here. Uh, now, of course, we've got floods. You know, that happen every year. It's the most frequent uh, natural uh, disaster in the United States is flooding. Yeah. And then, of course, wildfires. You know, the hotter it gets and drier it gets during the summers, uh, we have a lot of high wildfire risk. Uh, and, you know, you've, you've got kind of your hypothermia and, you know, there's, um, there's a lot of things that can do you in. 
the price we pay for the beautiful landscape. Yeah. But if you get prepared, then you'll be all right. If you know what you're doing, get the training. So, so what's, uh, what's out there that, that people can do to, to be prepared? So there's kind of four main categories of how I kind of go through preparedness. And essentially is get informed. So listening to this podcast, uh, you know, finding out well, what are the hazards and the risks that you face. That's totally true. We talk a lot about preparedness on this podcast, so they should totally listen. Perfect, perfect. Well, they're, they're starting out. That's great. Uh, and also uh, looking at the, you know, mill.wa.gov forward slash preparedness website uh, and, you know, FEMA, ready.gov website, American Red Cross, uh, and of course, uh, their local emergency management website has a lot of great detailed information on the specific hazards and risks that are for the community. Uh, so definitely checking those out, reaching out to emergency managers. So getting informed uh, is, is, is key for uh, creating a family emergency plan is really essential. Uh, you know, and that's just how are you going to respond and prepare for an event. You might be at work, your kid might be at school, you, right. know, you guys are split up, how are you guys going to get together, get back together? Right, what's your reunification plan? Do you know if you're at work or school or out shopping, you know, what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? What happens if the overpasses have collapsed and the telephone poles are down and you can't drive anywhere, right? Is there a shelter nearby? How are you going to communicate? Do you have out-of-area contact? Uh, you know, just getting that family emergency plan and kind of walking through the different scenarios, uh, most likely scenarios, and, and how you're going to, uh, you know, take care of yourselves and, and reunite and, and, and make sure you're going to survive through it. Uh, and then you want to build kits and I always tell people start out with your vehicle kit if you have a vehicle because it's most likely going to be with you or nearby right. whether you're at work or home or shopping uh, having one in your car is extremely important uh, and then you know building from there because again when you're getting prepared it's, it's a lifelong journey it's one step at a time you know don't burn yourself out just do a little at a time plan it out uh, and then having a go bag is extremely important, especially if you're on the coast, because that may be the only thing you can grab before you have to get to high ground. And you want to make sure you've got the key things in there that's going to help you survive. Uh, and then getting connected. So essentially getting signed up for alerts, whether that be hopefully earthquake early warning when it comes hopefully to the public in the next year or two. Uh, you know, getting signed up for your local alerts, if you know, for a city or county. Uh, and, you know, and, and getting signed up for ENS, which is your earthquake notification system through USGS, or for, you know, tsunami alerting through NOAA, National Weather Service, um, you know, and whatever alerts you can. Uh, and then getting connected with your neighbors, uh, getting CERT training, community emergency response training, uh, getting, you know, whatever other training that you is available, uh, and talking to your friends and family and your neighbors, and, you know, just, you know, participating in exercises mm -hmm. such as the Great Washington Shakeout, right. which is the largest earthquake drill in the world. It's the uh, third Thursday of every October. Uh, we also have a big tsunami component as well. So if you're on the coast, we want you to practice your evacuation uh, and, and walking your routes, of course. Uh, but essentially, yeah, so it's get informed, right. make a family emergency plan, build a kit or two, right. and uh, get connected. And those are kind of the key things. And you know, it's, again, it, it takes time. But and don't be intimidated, just a little bit at a time. So what do you do to be prepared, to be, what have you done? Like you did every single one of those things that you just described? Yes, you have. yes, yes. So you have a kit at work, you got a kit at in your car. Yeah, actually I have a sleeping bag at work, I have extra clothes, I have hygiene, I've got food, I've got water. Uh, I have actually like 
four preparedness kits. We uh, have a plethora of water and I soda. see that. Water is important. Three days without water, you're in trouble. I have a couple car kits. I've got a kit for my wife at her work. Actually, it's larger than just for her because her, she works for a small company, like 10 people. And so I just add some extra stuff for them. Uh, I also have uh, you know, extensive supply of food and water and, and everything at home in different places. So uh, in my garage, in multiple rooms, just in case you can't access a certain part of the house. Wow. Yeah, and I recently, I have a one-year-old son, and so I've had to change my preparedness stuff to incorporate what he needs. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also changed my family emergency plan right. because number one is to reunite him with mom. Right. So I've got a, a few babysitters that help us out and family. Uh, so I updated our family emergency plan, went through all that uh, to, because we live in Seattle, so and there are uh, hubs in Seattle. And yeah. essentially they're kind of sort of communication information centers. And so I have mapped all those out to where the most common places that we're going to be, uh, not myself, but my family and friends. And so they know where their closest hubs are. Because you're like, I'll be here. Well, I'll either, <laughs> if I'm at work, I will be here at Camry for a very long time. Uh, if I happen to be in Seattle, if I'm south of the canal, I'm going to go to the Seattle Emergency Operations Center. Uh, now I already have pre-planned with them, so I'm not you know, springing myself on them. Uh, and then if I'm north of the canal in Seattle, then I'm going to go to the Regional Response Coordination Center in Bothell from FEMA Region 10. So is this something that everybody can plan to go to those places, or is it...? No. Uh, so you need to, uh, if you're an emergency manager, uh, and, you know... You, oh, it's tied simply because you of what you do? Yes, because okay. of what I do. I have certain roles and responsibilities. Right. But I am responding to the event, to whatever local... Oh. Uh, emergency operations center that I can. And we have Washington EMD, uh, Washington State Emergency Management Division, we have looked at where we live and work and everything and, and kind of pre-planned because we're not, most of us are not going to be able to get here, let's say if it happens in the middle of the night. Right. Because, I mean, just from Seattle to Camp Murray, there are, I think, 14 overpasses that potentially could collapse. Yeah. So it's going to be next to impossible. And this is something to consider if you work at JBLM or you work at Camp Murray, uh, you know, are you, how are, are you going to get here? I could run. You could run. Okay. <laughs> You're going to have to look at That's know, gonna be not my taking the freeway. Plan too. I, won't, you know, I don't have to. I could go completely through the base. Perfect. Well, a lot of people may not necessarily have that or not know their right. alternative routes, right? So being prepared and, and knowing your alternative ways of getting to work, getting to the base, uh, and also if you don't have a family plan with your family, Right. then what often happens is people don't report to work because they want to make sure their family's safe or they're not prepared themselves. Right. I would also run to my child. That's, that's probably the plan. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah, so reunification with your children, uh, knowing what the schools, if your children are in school, what is their emergency plan? Right. You know, I mean, do they test it? Do they, they practice? Are, so my daughter is in uh, the Silicon district, and they do practice several different emergencies. So, Great. Yeah. Great. So at least, you know, one school system, no. Well, they tell us that they did it. Ah, okay. So <laughs> what I'm trying to do, hopefully, <laughs> over the next number of years, is to encourage schools to practice with parents. Right. Because what we don't want is parents panicking and coming to the school when they don't need to, especially if they're in the tsunami zone. Right. right? We want them to go into high ground. 
Also, if they have no idea what the emergency plan is, their kid doesn't have their out-of-area contacts in their backpack or their phone, uh, you know, and they don't know what the protocol is, then there's going to be all kinds of chaos potentially. So practicing with the parents and then also helping to inform the parents that, hey, did you know you have earthquake risk? <laughs> you know, did you know you have a tsunami risk? Uh, so making sure that the parents are informed and practicing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was nice that she did it, though. I mean, oh, it's different for me since I work here and I actually get informed. But, yeah, I could definitely see how that would be a better way to do it. Yeah, it's important. And having everyone involved. Uh, just practicing with like maybe an alert message and then seeing how that goes. Right. So I just want to run through real quick what people should expect okay. during the shaking. Yes. And just some tips, yeah. recommendations you know, during and then right after. So let's say the earthquake happens next month, right? Wherever in Washington State. And Earthquake early warning is not available yet, right? So you're not going to get seconds to minutes of warning, right? It's just going to happen. So you start feeling shaking. You figure out what it is. It takes, sometimes it takes a little bit because it doesn't happen very often, right. right? So was that a big truck? What was, I, what was that, right? So as soon as you realize, whoa, it's shaking, this is an earthquake, hopefully you drop cover and hold on under something that will protect you because the most likely injuries are going to happen from something either falling on you within a building uh, or you falling down when you're trying to move. Right. Uh, so you want to make sure you're protecting your head and your neck, you're getting underneath something solid, or if you're outside, you're getting away from anything that can fall on you and, and get down to the ground, protect yourself. Um, there's also kinds of tips uh, you can look at for when you're driving, uh, you, know, you know, looking around you, slowing down, alerting everyone that you're slowing down, pull over somewhere safe so you don't have a telephone pole landing on your car or an overpass, uh, you know, putting on your emergency brake, your head and neck and ride it out, right? So there's key things that you can do. So let's say you ride out the earthquake, you've protected yourself, shaking stops. So immediately what you want to do is you want to check yourself for injuries because your heart's probably going to be pounding, you know, it's going to be a stressful situation. So check yourself thoroughly for injuries, right? Because you don't want to bleed out, right? So then once you've done that, you want to assess your environment. Is there broken glass? Is a fire started? Uh, do you smell gas? Right. Uh, you know, is pe are people screaming? Uh, does it sound like your building is cracking still? Uh, you know, so you want to assess your environment real quick to see, okay, do I need to get away from where I am to somewhere safe? Uh, and if you don't, sm you know, smell smoke or see fire or, you know, gas or you know, you, you seem like okay, this I think I'm okay, then you're going to want to look around and check for other people. Are they injured? Does anyone need help? Uh, let's say you're at work, right? So hopefully you have an emergency plan at work where you know you go down through a checklist of people uh, and you've got facility managers who are kind of checking the building to make sure you know, everything's okay. Uh, but essentially, yeah, checking if anybody else needs help, injuries, and then follow whatever your, your you know, evacuation or whatever your emergency plan is. Uh, and then you want to try to obviously contact folks, your out-of-area contact. Using a uh, you know, text message is a lot more likely uh, to get through, uh, but figuring out and following your, your plan, uh, you know, based on the conditions that have happened. So essentially, those are the key things. Now, if you're at home uh, and you know how to turn off the gas and you feel like it was the earthquake was damaging enough that you might have to turn off your gas, 
uh, then go ahead and do so. Also the water as, as well. Uh, and if you're at home as well, one of the best things to do for water is to shut off the water that's coming in from the street and to drain that clean water that's still in your pipes into the bathtub that is at the lowest level, whether that be in the basement or ground floor. So you want to drain all that clean water into that bathtub so you have that able to use. Hmm. Um, so that's one of the first things that I would do after you turn off you know, the gas and the water if you need to. Right. Uh, and then just kind of assessing your structure. You know, is it safe to be in there? Uh, you know, and just gathering yourself and, and following your plan. This is so informative. Yeah, and very scary. I think I want to move Yeah, now. right? <laughs> I don't know. No, no. I still want to look at the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Even though they're dangerous. So I, I stole this from Steve Eberlein, uh, but essentially his, one of his preparedness talks is he says, well, imagine, so we all, a lot of us like, to, we moved here or we live here, we like to go camping, right? In the right. Now, an earthquake or a major disaster is like when camping comes to you. Mm. <laughs> yep. And you didn't plan for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to look at that it. That is yeah. one way to look at it. Luckily, <laughs> there's many different pieces of camping gear in my garage. Yeah. Yes, I have all my camping gear next to a lot of my preparedness stuff. Uh, and I use the camping and, and hiking and to cycle stuff out. So. My husband and I both have 10 plus years of military gear in our garage. So plenty of gear to choose from. Perfect, <laughs> assuming you can get into your garage. Assuming we can get yeah, into our garage. Doors, and especially garage doors, tend to get jammed. Just gonna hulk so it. So having a crowbar somewhere. Smart. Is, yeah, would be, a, would be a good move. Thank you. Thank you for scaring the pants off of us. <laughs> yeah. And making us rethink how we <laughs> are going to be so preparing from here on out. What we've seen over and over again for disasters around the world is that the people who get prepared are the ones that survive right. over and over again. All right. Well, you heard it from the man himself. Get prepared. Yep. Get prepared. Doomsday style. Thank you very much. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Yeah.